I didn't have an AIM. I didn't have a chat. I was uh, kind of under the radar. Winter, is that what it's like growing up in Minnesota? You just live off. Dude, the I grid? think it must be. I didn't. I didn't have one either. <laughs> I used my parents. Like we had a family email, and I would just AIM people from it. Say so, yeah, it's definitely a Minnesota thing. Yeah. <laughs> AIM didn't reach here in time. No, we're too. We don't. We just got internet a couple. You know, a decade ago. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Welcome to Footy Fellas, coming at you from Chicago and Minnesota, both of these states with somewhat nice days outside today, I'm I'm hoping, after looking at the weather online from Minnesota. We're going to be talking soccer, going to be talking life, playing games, playing mind games. We got a little something for you. If you haven't yet, throw us a follow on Instagram at Footy Fellas Pod, F O O T Y Fellas Pod on Instagram. We got a great interview today with Evan Pankin, a FOF, friend of Footy Fellas, who won a national championship playing at Notre Dame and also went pre med. So, of course, we made him tell us whether certain bones in the body were overrated or underrated. So, that's something to look forward to. But what a, what a beautiful day outside today, gents, huh? Sun is shining. Not a single cloud in the sky here in Chicago. I, I'm feeling optimistic that today's gonna be our day. Makes me want to create a uh, create a, a music playlist. Ooh, summertime music playlist for uh, a Footy Fellas All right. branded playlist. That, that's inspiring, actually. What uh, I love bang, it. What bangers are we putting on this on this playlist, guys? Top of our dome right now. Rack City. Okay, <laughs> that's just the whole playlist. It's just <laughs> If we keep coming back to you, IT, is it going to be the same song, or are you going to you going to sway? Like, because we're going on rotation here. I'm going second. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in, I'm gonna throw "Beautiful Day" obviously by U2. It's not U2. Are, wait, are you what? serious? <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> you think it's U2? Winter. What other bangers you thrown on there? Georgia. Georgia. By. Uh, by what's his name? John Mayer? Yeah, Johnny. Is it Georgia? Is it why Georgia? Is it just Georgia? Oh. Why? Is it why Georgia? Georgia. Georgia. It's a great call, though. I just wish I knew what it was. Might have to throw some Bugsy Malone on there. Oh, dude. What a reference. Little British. I just popped up my Spotify to, to see what was what's happening. Because I'm a... That's too funny, guys. Yeah, Bugsy Malone might have to find his way on there. Bugsy Malone has made it. Uh, Okay, my turn. Maybe Uh, let's throw. Let's throw. What's a great good vibes you're having it? Um, What's that? Florence and the Machine and um, Ooh, um, Dog Days Are Over. Yeah, Dog Days Are Over. I'm gonna go with the the other thing, but I'm gonna go with that one. What was that song I sent you the other day, Jones? Saturday in the Park? That is a, that's Saturday. a good It is Saturday, and I would love to be in a park. All right. Back to you, Eli. I'll go, since we're doing snake draft, which we need to get to our <laughs> results in a second here, I'll do um, Edge of 17, Stevie Nicks. Wow. For that kind of, you know, excited but nervous vibe that we all feel right now going outside. And then also... I'm a man of constant sorrow by the Soggy Bottom Boys. Wow. 
What a reference. I see. Are, are you familiar with uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm not. Uh, maybe that's going to be our... I was going to say an anthem. I'm not sure it's really anthem level, but it's definitely an important song. Yeah. Soggy Bottom Boys. I I love that name. It's a great <laughs> band name. It's a band with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's it fits perfectly. It's uh, I, I actually that might be a great movie for you, you and uh, you and the missus to watch some some evening. A nice, it's like a, it's a George Clooney. Um, plot is you know prohibition era, and it's it follows the same. It, it takes place in like the South, but it follows the same kind of obstacles as the Odyssey, um, which is really interesting. It's a comedy. It's slightly musical. It's actually very musical. And uh, written by the Cohen brothers, so it's mm. it's a quality quality. It's like an all timer. You guys, I think you would really really enjoy it. All right, I'm gonna do it. Do I'm it. gonna do Foster do the People. Sit next to me, basically. Uh, that's a summer anthem. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> Max, why are all of your playlists named Max Number One? <laughs> next try. Hopefully, next playlist will be better. Max Number Two. Hopefully, next playlist will be better. <laughs> it's so weird to name them all like Cause that because I, I never settle. I always try to optimize and make it a little bit better next time. And just throw on it. our on our sunny day playlist. Sunny day, here's your sunny day playlist, everybody. Yeah. Have a great day. Starts off with Rack City. <laughs> <laughs> then quickly into John Mayer. Veers off the road. Crack Kareem's into John Mayer. Uh, it's picked up by Bugsy Malone hanging out with Ute. Um, then Florence and her machine take a stroll through the park on a Saturday with Stevie Nicks and the soggy bottom and the so- boys and the saggy, bo- sog- soggy bottom boys post Malone and Kanye uh, feature and take a seat next to the foster and the people um, where they take a sweet, sweet bite out of the disposition of um, uh, that's a horrible ending here, but of a, of a message from until the police come until the police come and break it up. Park's not that socially distant. Sounds pretty packed to me. There we go. There's a, there's a whole story that goes with our playlist. I do think uh, I want to delete Rack City. Terrible pick <laughs> for, <laughs> for the playlist. Doesn't really work. Any any qualms with our actual snake draft that we did last week with Geech and Grammar on the pod, our World 11 draft, and the response it's been getting on our Instagram page? Anything you'd like to vent right now? To everyone, to our millions of listeners, I uh, personally I feel like uh, it needs it needs it's not statistically significant yet. How does that how does that how does that sound, analytics boys? I don't think we have enough votes to um, really establish a significant norm. Nor do I think we've had a completely even voting pool. I think the voter pool has been heavily skewed by um, voting blocks and is corrupt. Uh, almost more so than FIFA, so that's my that's my <laughs> off the bat reaction. Yeah, I'm going to take a, a little bit less of an abrasive stance, and just for the folks listening, you've got Geech FC sitting at number one with ten votes, and you've got myself Studs Up FC in fifth place with seven votes. So you know, from first to fifth, three vote separation. So not not too much, but I do understand why I may be in last place. Don't have any super superstars that sort of everyone would recognize right away. I feel like that's a disadvantage. And not seeing a familiar face, a familiar name is tough to get behind. 
I think the diehards would be pretty excited with your Sancho, Mane on the wings. And and Lewandowski, obviously, still crushing it this year, even though he's like 50. So <laughs> you, you got some names up top. Maybe the, the defense is a little on the older side, potentially. But hopefully you got some some name recognition. Like you said, 7 to 10 is pretty pretty tight race in terms of yeah. getting. You know, you look at Geech, FC, and you, know, you see Messi. You see Messi on top. If you're a big fan of Messi, as I am, favorite player, you're you're likely gonna pick that team for that sole reason. Do you think that's why Messi's so valued as a player, like his contract? Because just it, it's, I mean, let me put it this way: look at like Mane versus Hazard on transfer market, for example. I think the if if it was maybe it was last year I was looking at it, so it could be significantly different now. But Hazard was valued significantly more, like maybe like 30 million more or so. Um, and it was purely because of name recognition. People know Hazard, they don't know Mane. And, and that felt like just a wild situation. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge factor because it drives jersey sales. It drives people to, the, to buy tickets to go see the game because they want to see that player that they know, right? Everyone... Everyone wants to be more engaged in the sport and the team if they're familiar with a few players, right? Everyone knows Messi. So even a peripheral fan would be like, oh, I'm going to see Messi? I don't know him that well, but I've heard him and I know he's like the best player in the world. So I'm going to go. Definitely drives attendance. We'll see what players step up as the Bundesliga returns next weekend, next Saturday. Pretty exciting. Weird without fans, but pretty exciting, like we talked about on last week's pod. Yep, I, I think it's going to be a great. Uh, it's going to be a welcome rebirth of, of the game, and, and it's going to be energizing for folk. Um, I still am dubious of the EPL coming back and working, and am torn whether or not this is going to, you know, just it should I would imagine help motivate the EPL to expedite and get themselves live as soon as possible. I don't know. We'll just have to see what happens. We'll have to wait and see. Aside from that, Jones is going to hit us with our main storyline from the past week with some important news and an update. If you haven't been staying as close to the U.S. Soccer Federation going on. Yes. So I'm sure if, if you've been anywhere near soccer in the past year or so, you've caught wind of the U.S. Women's National Team's fight against the U.S. Soccer Federation um, for equal pay, um, citing that they uh, are not equally compensated for their, um, uh, for their services relative to the, to the men's team. Um, I wanted to provide an update as some, as some pretty major rulings came down last week um, to ensure everyone is up to speed with, with how the case has unfolded. So to give you guys a little background, um, uh, the U.S. Women's National Team technically filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation in March of 2019, claiming they were being unequally compensated for their services relative to the men's team. The suit alleges the U.S. Soccer Federation's payment practices amount to federal discrimination by paying women less than men for substantially equal work and by not denying them at least equal playing, training, and travel conditions equal promotion of their games, equal support and development for their games, and other terms and conditions of employment equal to the men's national team. 
the crux of the women's national team suit argued that when you compare how each team would have been compensated under the other's collective bargaining agreement, CBA, or pay structure, the woman would have been paid more. The CBAs differ in that the women's national team players are paid regardless of whether they play a match or not, while the men's CBA calls for players to be paid if they are called into camp to play and then participate in the match. The judge, R. Gary Klosser, dismissed the suit, stating, one, that the women's national team fairly negotiated their current CBA and, in fact, chose it over the men's CBA when originally proposed, and two, the women's national team did not prove wage discrimination because they played more games and made more money than the men. To compare, uh, lawyers on either side looked at the time period between 2015 and 2019. Women played 111 games and made $24.5 million in salaries, or $221,000 per game, whereas the men played 87 games and made $18.5 million in salaries, uh, a.k.a. Uh, $213,000 per game. Part of the reason is because the women have won nonstop. If the women's national team, if the men's national team, excuse me, big difference, um, had actually qualified for the 2018 World Cup, they would have made at least an additional $23 million, significantly outpacing the women. So really, the crux to the argument is founded on, or excuse me, the, the crux to the dismissal of the women's national team lawsuit comes down to the U.S. men's national team failure to actually accomplish anything and purely being less uh, accomplished. Um, the women's national team are going to appeal, and if not have already, um, and are optimistic that they will find a fair agreement in the future. Um, this is pretty shocking, as, as a lot of people initially thought this was a pretty open and closed uh, case. Um, so it's, it's rocked the sports world, especially in the U.S., and uh, we will stay tuned for any, any developments as they come. Um, do you guys have any gut reactions to this to this story? Yeah, it's a disgrace. I, you know, the women are so much more successful than the men's team. Uh, it's not even close. They win World Cups. I can't even say the men in their entire history will ever win a World Cup. It's just so out of their reach. Um, yeah, the women are more talented. They actually, I heard, they drive more sales of jerseys and, and attendance. You know, it's right up there with the men's. And I think given the fact that you just said, if the men would have made the World Cup, which it's pathetic that they didn't, um, that they would have made $23 million on top of the 18 or whatever million that you had just said, that $23 million is the full salary total that you listed for the women. Um, it's just ridiculous. Uh, the women deserve to be paid definitely equally, if not more so than the men. And look, from a from a business perspective, or, or from a law perspective, it makes sense that the federation supporting the men's national team and not wanting to change their current structure picked out very specific per-game numbers. Um, but it takes away from the reality and everything that both you and Icy just said about the women being more successful playing more games and should be earning more money because of that and because of their success, their name recognition that we were talking about with Messi and how much more they're doing for the game of soccer in the U S currently. And all of that is definitely being 
kind of swept under the rug in what's being brought forward from the other side that is understandably trying to figure out the best way to position their case. So it makes sense what's being brought forward, but I think a lot of people around the U.S. share our disappointment and frustration at how this is going down for the women's team, and obviously none more so than themselves, who you mentioned to me, Jones, were discussing a couple of potential ways to approach this and kind of attack what's been going on. Yeah, they. I think the women's national team now – uh, and always has to an extent recognize the power that they have, and, and not only in soccer, and, and which we'll we'll talk about more specifically, but they also have power relative to um, all women's sports, especially in the U.S. Being as dominant as they are, um, their actions and what they say and do ha- seems to have a ripple effect across across um, uh, verticals, types of sports. Um, so, so as they look to further this case and appeal, I think one strategy that they can very readily take um, to demonstrate their impact and force a fair agreement is to simply boycott and not play games. Um, the women's soccer without the, the U.S. women's national team is, is a very different game um, and loses a lot of the star power and um, passion that we have been so fortunate to watch over the past several decades. Um, so it feels like they would rather not go that route, but that could be an ultimatum set by the women's national team um, to circumvent some of the legalese that has been um, jamming up their their process. Well, we'll see what happens, but definitely stay tuned. We'll try to provide updates when major news like that breaks on our weekly pod, uh, but do your own research and we will see what happens there. With that, we're going to head to our first ad break. Thank our first sponsor, who are so central to the to this podcast, to the Footy Fellas Pod. And afterwards, get into our exciting interview with Evan Pankin. Are you a millennial trapped in student debt whose likelihood of owning a home is low? Well, now you can build your dream home with a 3D millennial home printer. Simply go onto the Millennial Home Buying Experience website. Follow the prompts describing your dream house, and in only three to five business business days, you will receive your ideal miniature dream house. Now you can decorate your apartment or parents' basement with your miniature dream house. Now when your family asks, when are you going to get the place of your own? You can respond, I already did, and it's all I ever dreamed of. Service costs $29.99 plus shipping and handling. Live your dreams in your dreams with your new miniature millennial house. Sign me up. Yeah, it's e- easy, done, done. I, I've been looking forward to having my basement uh, redone so I can live on, under my mom. And not just redone to be a basement, but redone to represent a whole house in your basement. Represent, of course. It's a, it, it, this is like a shoebox size thing, right? That's, yeah, that, that's yeah you're, putting, right? you're putting it up on the mantle or something. Oh, nice. Nice. So it's really thin. If it's going on the mantle, it's got to be a really thin house. We're talking like four <laughs> rooms, just long. Oh, oh, yeah. My mantle's pretty big over here uh, in my millennial house. So that's beautiful. We'll all be architects. Today, we are happy to be joined by Evan Pankin, a former youth soccer teammate of mine here in Minnesota. In the interview, we discuss the redshirting process that he went through the national championship journey, balancing priorities between 
pre-med responsibilities and soccer responsibilities. And finally, the MLS and USL decision-making process. Stay tuned. The Footy Fellows podcast is happy to welcome Evan Pankin today. A former youth soccer teammate of mine, Evan continued playing soccer at the Division I level at Notre Dame, where he helped the team win their first ever national championship in 2013. On the pitch, he started all 88 games he played, ending a four-year career with 13 goals and 22 assists. During all four years of playing, he was part of the ACC All-Academic Team and graduated pre-med with a Spanish degree. He is now a medical student at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. Welcome, Evan. Bienvenidos. <laughs> hey, Max. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've been working on that all week, Winter. You've been working on that, that Bienvenidos all week. Just cause I thought about it just now. Happy Cinco de Mayo, everyone. I know now <laughs> we've just dated this interview is happening before our official episode release, but it's a happy day. It's a celebratory day. It is. It's a party. Does <laughs> that bring back good memories, Evan, hearing about the, uh, the Notre Dame glory days? <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely does. I actually had a, a Zoom call with some of my old teammates. We They replayed the national championship game, I think, two weeks ago on the ACC network, and we all watched it together and kind of reminisced. So it's definitely fresh right now. Oh, that's fun. So you keep in contact with a bunch of the, the players? Handful? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a good group of guys in Chicago. So I, I see them in person, and then some of the, my other teammates are kind of scattered all over the place. So text, Snapchat, try and stay in touch as much as possible. You got to be, you got to be playing some pickup in Chicago, right? Maybe if you have time. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely do. We, uh, there's a med school league. We play football in this little gym right by, uh, the medical campus and it's pretty slippery, but that's pretty fun. Um, and then I, I sometimes jump in the fire pitch and some of the turf games up there. So that's, it's a pretty fun time. Evan, have do you, is there ever any chance you ever played? I mean, it's the same thing. It must be. Eli and I have a friend who goes to Northwestern Law School, and so he okay. played. And like he he needed some reinforcements, pretty pretty big, for that mini gym right by the right by the medical school. And so like Eli and I hopped into like three weeks of those games at one point back back like in 2019, I think. Man, maybe we maybe we met in person. I was gonna so. say, I wonder if we played against each other because we played that <laughs> law school team a lot. <laughs> you guys definitely probably crossed paths. That's awesome. Well, Evan, so how did you end up choosing Notre Dame um, as the school you wanted to go to from out of high school? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I, you know, I I knew one of my goals kind of playing club soccer growing up is I, I really wanted to play division one soccer. Um, and so I was kind of starting my recruitment process as like a freshman going into sophomore year. And I was looking at a lot of good academic schools in addition to soccer schools. So I was looking at some schools like Colgate, um, out East and other schools that just have a really good academic record and good soccer team as well. And then, my high school coach actually told me he was friends with the Notre Dame coach and told me to go to the Notre Dame uh, summer camp between my, I want to say it was between my freshman and sophomore year must've been. And I went down there, really enjoyed the campus. I played well at the camp and that fall I got a letter from the coach. He saw me play a couple times with my club team at the time. Um, and then they invited me to campus that spring 
and it's kind of an unofficial visit. And at the end of it, he offered me a, you know, offered me a spot on the team and offered me a scholarship. And I kind of talked with my parents and I think I was like so excited at that point. I I didn't wait long. So kind of got back to him pretty quickly and and accepted the offer. I I really enjoyed the school. I think the, the soccer team was really built and run professionally and the coach was really invested in the players. So I was pretty sold from being on campus with all of them. Very cool. Cool. And then, so that first year, so you, you get to campus, you're really excited. Um, and now, did you know you were being redshirted going in uh, to that year? Or how did that, how did that work out? Yeah. Uh, so no, I did not know going in. I actually left. So I graduated high school in the spring and then I actually had a week at home and I went to Notre Dame for like a summer school type program called the Bridge Program, which was a really good experience. It was definitely tough to leave home so quickly, but um, it was a good opportunity to kind of get to know some of the guys doing summer school. I think there was like 10, 12 players on campus that summer. Um, so I got to know the school, got to know the team. And then that fall, we start our preseason like a month or so before school starts. <clears throat> and so the whole team comes down to campus and our coach, he has, he's kind of not notorious, but he has a history of, of redshirting majority of the freshman class, which I think is a, is a really good good practice kind of in retrospect. But going into that season, you know, I, I didn't know I was going to be redshirted. And it was definitely a, a tough process not to play and <clears throat> to sit on the bench and kind of have to watch games. But looking back on it, it was definitely the right decision. You know, I wasn't physically or technically ready to play at that level yet. And so I think that was a really good year of growth for me. Do you think that was the biggest piece was just maturing physically, mentally adjusting to college? What were the biggest benefits of redshirting in your mind? Yeah. Um, So, I I mean, I think like at the time I I had, you know, I think everybody going in is used to being a, a good player, you know, maybe parts of the team kind of revolve around them, especially in like high school soccer. So you're kind of used to being played and getting that play time. And so it's definitely a big adjustment. And it was hard too, because redshirting as a freshman at Notre Dame meant not traveling to ACC game or Big East games at the time. So we would, me and five other freshmen would like watch the games on the TV when the team was traveling out East. And that was definitely hard. But I think the biggest, the biggest thing, the biggest benefit for me was just more time to adjust to the coach's play style, to kind of I put on a lot of weight my freshman year lifting and just adjusting technically to the speed of the game so looking back on it it was really great for me because it gave me the opportunity to come back for a fifth year where I could really contribute to the team a lot more than I ever could have as a as an incoming freshman absolutely yeah last question about that freshman year what what's the level of competition like between freshmen that are all trying to earn a spot on the starting starting squad yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. I think, you know, everybody who came in from my class were really close. We were really tight knit group and that was a huge benefit for us. I think, you know, obviously everybody wants to play and everyone's a really good player at that level. So I think whenever we stepped onto the pitch it was, you know, a hundred percent, everyone was competing. You're still friends at the end of the day when you walk off the field, but um there's definitely times when things got heated and people got frustrated, but I think everyone was just a really good professional and a really good player. And they knew that things that were said or, you know, tackles on the, on the soccer field didn't really translate into 
any problems with friendship. So I think it's definitely a line people have to walk and sometimes you do it better than others, but everyone competes hard. And I think that's what pushes the team to succeed and be better. So it was, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, Evan, I remember you when we played together back on the uh, Minneapolis United. Um, I, I always remember you very distinctly. Always, you're you're so competitive, and you always wanted to be out there um, trying your hardest, and and always on the pitch. You know, running, running like you were going to get subbed in a minute, and I love <laughs> that. And so now, as we transition to talk about this championship journey, this uh, your sophomore year. Right. So first year, you know, it was tough. I, kn- I know it was tough for you to sit, um, given kind of the player that you are. But your second season, you start all 24 games. Um, you were only one of four other players that, that did that throughout the season. So how did that feel to be such an integral, an integral part of that championship achievement? You know, the first one in history for Notre Dame. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, that was I was really proud of that team and obviously our accomplishment of winning the national championship was huge for the program and for our coach. Um, and I definitely had, you know, it was a big source of pride for me. I had, I had worked really hard my freshman year and I worked really hard going into the summer. And I think, you know, with anything in sports and in life, there's always an element of luck. There was a really good player who was ahead of me kind of for that left mid position. And he was extremely talented. And unfortunately he got injured in preseason that year. Um, which kind of opened the door and gave me, you know, a little bit more of a look and I kind of took that opportunity and ran with it. So obviously huge bummer not to have him. And, you know, I'm sure he would have done great things probably better than I, I did that year, but I took that opportunity and, and ran with it. And I'm, I'm really proud of the work I put in to get there. So it was a, it was a cool year for us. Getting, getting a sense from you, you sound like a good, humble guy. Um, and if anything, that's probably the biggest um, you're probably the key person we want to ask. What what was it about this team that you think made it unique and successful in in the long run? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we had we had great coaching and support staff on on that team, and we did every year. Um, but that year, especially, there was just there was just a sense of belief. I think we really had the right players, and um, I think college soccer is a game where organization and and really having people buy into the to the plan is, is a huge piece. And we had a couple extremely talented players. Um, Harry Ship was the best player in college soccer that year. Um, my roommate and good friend Patrick Hodan was, was extremely talented and scored a lot of goals for us. But I think really the key to that season was just team committing from every player, from the guys who were redshirting to the guys who were starting. Um, it was really just felt like a team moment and people bought in and we played really hard for each other. And I think that just translated and obviously, you know, we got some good, some good luck in the tournament, but, you know, I felt like we had put in the hard work to earn that. So that's what I would say was the biggest piece for us. Back in the day, I played with the fire Academy and, and was fortunate enough, I'd suppose perhaps to get to play against Harry ship when he mm-hmm. played there too. And, um, and I didn't understand him, and I and I, I'm hoping you can explain some of this to me because the dude was like the the least intimidating figure. I'm Evan. I'm five, like eight on a good day, and so when I saw him line up against him, I'm like, all right, great, like feeling good here. And he he just moved different. I don't know how to put it. Um, you spent more time with him. What what to you impressed impressed uh, uh, you about his his play, his his style that made him a I guess in your own words, the best player in college soccer is his senior year. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Harry was really special. He's definitely one of the, one of the special players that I played with. He, he's just so shifty. I think that's the kind of word like his, his quickness is unparalleled. He's so quick, so hard to tie down, but he's just really shifty. And obviously his technique is, is, is second to none. He's really, really technical player, but he was just so shifty and you couldn't really get the ball off him and you couldn't really tackle him. Um, and he just found a way to get through players. So that's kind of how I always saw Harry. And he was just a really hard worker, kind of put his head down, led by example, really great teammate. Were there any key moments in your ride in the tournament? Any, any noteworthy things where, you know, you, whenever you finally think back on your, your trip to, to the championship, you think, wow, like overcoming that team or, or scoring that goal or making that run, that game, that moment sticks in your mind a little bit more than the rest. Yeah, I think for sure. We, we were a top four seed that year. <clears throat> so we were one of the one seeds. So we had home field advantage for the first three games after a bye. And our third game, so that would have been the quarterfinals of the tournament, we played Wake Forest at home. And they were an uh, extremely talented team. We had played them previously in the year, and I can't remember what the result was. It was, might have been like 0-0-1-1 or 1-0, um, but it was really tight. And we played that game, and it, it was a pretty crazy game. I think it ended 4-2 or 4-3 in our favor, but I just remember the game ending and being like, hey, um, we can do this, because we had just battled through a really tough game. And they were really talented and we had fought and we had won and there was a just the belief was building from there, I think. So that's definitely the moment I look back on and just think we got this. I love that's that. Awesome. I love that sounds that. a great moment. Um, yeah. So as we were looking at back at that tournament, you know, so you guys were ranked number three in the nation, UCLA and Washington were the two ranked higher than you. Were you at all watching how they fared in their games? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we, you know, we all watch the selection show and you kind of see where the bracket turns out and people talk about the bracket um, going into the tournament. And then the coaches definitely keep us focused on like game to game, just take it one game at a time. And, you know, you never really know what's going to happen with the other teams. But Washington, I was watching pretty closely, especially as we neared the final four. Um because their coach is actually the son of our head coach, Jamie Clark, son of Bobby Clark. And I, Jamie Clark uh, recruited me when I was in high school. He was at Creighton at the time, and he's an amazing coach. And I was very close to playing for him, and I think really highly of him. So I was definitely watching his team. Um, it would have been a tough game, but it would also have been fun to play against them. They were really well coached and really talented. I think they ended up losing um, – and either the Elite Eight or the Final Four. So we ended up not playing them, but we were close. Yeah, that would have been a, that would have been a fun game between father-son uh, yeah. battle of the coaches. Yeah, so not to diminish any of the success you and uh, the team had in the next years after that championship year, but you guys never went back to the championship. And I just I was curious, why do you think that is? Player, coach turnover, other factors? Yeah, it's, I think tough question for sure, because um, we had some really talented teams. And actually, I was fortunate for my five years, I was I played under Bobby Clark the whole time. So we had a fantastic coaching staff. We definitely had a little bit of turnover in some of our assistant coaches, but every every coach that was there was, was fantastic. And so um, hard to pin down, you know, the right answer. We definitely had some special players over the years. 
and we were close. I, I don't think there was a single year where we weren't close. We were always ranked top 10, um, right at that, right at that edge. And we lost a, a couple teams that made it pretty far in the tournament. Um, but it's tough. I think the tournament style of play where it's knockout and sometimes, you know, we, we play in the, in the winter for, so it's like December, November, it's just a tough time for soccer in the Midwest in general. And so, um, they were always close games, but definitely heartbreaking losses in, in the tournament to, to be knocked out. So nothing I can really point to. I think we had fantastic teams, well-organized, well-coached, but sometimes you just don't have that final push to, to, to get across. Is there anything you would have changed in, in looking back on those last couple of years? Um, or, or do you feel confident that what you did was the best that you could have done? Hmm. Interesting. You know, I haven't thought too much about that, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I don't think there was anything I would change. I think we really did have, you know, some of the best teams in the countries at the at, at the time. Um, there was a lot of talented teams in, in college soccer. So there's rarely one team head and shoulders over others. Um, obviously, I think there's moments you wish you could have had back, done something slightly different. But I don't I think the way we set our team up and, and the players we had and the coaches we had, I think we were ready. We were one of the fittest teams in the country when it came down to it and had a lot of really talented players that were well-organized. So I don't think there's anything I would change, to be honest. I think we were well set up for success and just didn't, didn't fall our way at times. Actually, now that one thing I would change now that, now that you think about it. So we played the ACC tournament uh, championship the first year they had the higher seed actually hosted it. So we hosted the championship against Virginia tech and it was at Notre Dame it was during a football weekend. So the campus was pretty crazy. And we stayed in a hotel in Valparaiso, Indiana. So we were about 45 minutes away. I might've gotten the location wrong, but we were like a 45 minute drive from our stadium with home field advantage. And we stayed in this small hotel. It was like a motel, whole team, um, stayed one night, had like motel breakfast and then drove morning of the game. And we came out so flat against a team that we were better than. And we ended up losing, I think, 1-0 or 2-1. We didn't play well at all. We just, everyone seemed flat and tired. And I, if I could change one thing, I would, I think everyone would agree we would have liked to have stayed in our dorms and our apartments that, that for that game and not left the city of South Bend. Understandable. But that's I feel it. Like prep- that's it. That's the one thing. The one, the one <laughs> thing you would change. That's, the one thing. That, that's totally fair. We, uh, we we appreciate prep. I mean, we have a lot of prep coming into into these these pods, and and also understand in, in the game it requires a lot of mental fortitude. Um, you know, yes, I was asking about something that you think you would have changed in the past um, because maybe it didn't go as well, but we also know that you did something very well which was um, being able to balance your priorities. You were a, uh, the, the consummate student athlete. Uh, would you mind talking to us a little bit about what it was like going pre-med all the while balancing uh, the demands of a D1, very competitive um, soccer program? Yeah, uh, for sure. I think my experience at Notre Dame was very much a soccer experience and a school experience kind of tied together. <clears throat> There's a great pre-med program at Notre Dame and I think our coach and the department and support staff for our team put a put a high price on academics as well so they didn't really let anyone 
kind of slide on the academics. And I've always been someone who's enjoyed studying and learning and kind of pushed myself in both realms of academics and athletics. So for me, being at Notre Dame was was an amazing experience. Um, definitely hard to balance at times. I remember freshman year, I took a general chemistry class and that was that was a struggle. But I think by, you know, by the end of my freshman year, I kind of had it down and we had a pretty good support staff of tutors and academic center for student athletes at Notre Dame. So that definitely helped um, kind of gave us all the tools we needed. But the schedule was pretty much for during the week, you would wake up around seven, eight, go to class. Um, I had class pretty much all morning and <clears throat> early into the afternoon and then go to practice, finish practice, go to training tables for dinner or eat with the team in the dining hall. And then after that, go back to the dorms and usually study depending on the night so or have some downtime and just relax. But it was definitely a rigorous schedule, but I think it, it really taught me a lot of good lessons. And I'm pretty proud of how I was able to handle both by the end of my time there. Nice. Um so what was the, the decision about, right, you mentioned the next level, uh, MLS or USL. What did that, what, what was that process like? What was your, your mindset graduating um, your last year at Notre Dame? Yeah. <clears throat> so I was invited at the end of that season, I was invited to the MLS Combine in Los Angeles, which was, you know, a moment I was really proud of. It was a big opportunity. I think they invited like 64, something like that, um, college soccer players to go down to LA and they brought all the coaching staff from different MLS teams. And it was a five or six day event where you put you, they put you into teams, you played and tried to impress. And so that was an easy decision for me. It was all paid. I didn't have to pay for anything to go down there. So, um, that was kind of the, the springboard for me. And so that wasn't really a decision, but, after the combine, I ended up not getting drafted, uh, which was, you know, slightly disappointing, but also being drafted into the MLS is, is more of a tryout. It's not like some of the other professional sports in the U.S. where you get a big contract and um, unfortunately soccer is just not at that level yet here. So um, I wasn't super, you know, I was a little disappointed, but also, you know, you take it in stride and look for something next. And I think that was the moment where I really did some soul searching and had to kind of decide if I wanted to, to keep trying at the USL level or try overseas, or if I wanted to to hang up my boots and start med school. Cause at that point in time I had been accepted and was excited about that opportunity as well. Very cool. So let's get to the over under. So this is going to be a fun little bit where we will kind of take turns giving you some bones of the body and <laughs> you will, you'll give us either so, right, so you'll say either it's overrated or underrated. And then you'll give right. us a brief explanation as to why you're rating it that way. Um, it can also be rated. If you feel like the bone is just, you know, it's talked about as it should be, people rate it as it should be, it could be rated. So you really got to get to it quick. Overrated, underrated, rated, 15 seconds on why that's the case. Just speed around. Brilliant. Yep. Let's do it. All right. All right, let's start it off. First one is the patella. The patella, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that's underrated because I think when it goes wrong, it can cause a lot of damage. I had a patellar bursitis and it sucked. So I'm going to say underrated. You got to watch out for that one. That was beautiful. That was like 12 seconds. And I feel like already I'm, I'm underrating my, I've been underrating my patella. My <laughs> life, honestly. All right. Number two, the femur. 
the femur. I think the femur is overrated. I think it's, you know, it's huge and everyone knows that and you know where it is, but it just like, it doesn't do a whole lot. So I'm going to say it's a little overrated. Wow. I love that take. I was not expecting overrated for the femur. <laughs> uh, crucial part of the leg. That's uh. <laughs> fair. That's fair. I love it. I love it. All right. Number three, we've got the nasal bone. The nasal bone. I think the nasal bone is rated. I think, you know, it's pretty intricate. There's a lot going on there. And I think some of the ENT docs would not like my response, but it's just kind of there. And, and I'm cool with it just being rated. All right. Fair, fair. All right. Now for number four, the 12th pair of rib bones. So kind of that lowest rib pair in the rib cage. Hmm. 12th ribs. All right. I'm going to say they're underrated. I think it's pretty cool. They're the floating ribs, so they don't attach across to the sternum. Um, and right above some vital organs, kidneys, spleen, I'm going to say they're uh, underrated. That's what I'm talking about. Get a little med, med student knowledge right there. I love it. The floating <laughs> ribs. That's what I'm talking about. Did not know. That better be right. I got to Google this now. <laughs> hey, hey, no one, no one needs to know. It's the floating rib. I love that. All right, last one here. We've got the now. This is actually three bones. So, but it's the mm. the group of them. They're called the auditory ossicle. Ooh, I hope I'm saying that oh. right. Yeah. So the inner ear. Um, right. Middle ear. Middle ear. Those bones are definitely underrated. They are really cool. Um, the malleus incus and the stapes, and they help transmit sound. So I'm gonna say underrated. They're pretty cool. I would Google a picture if you haven't seen them. They're great. Love it. Yes. I'm going for it as we speak. I've been Googling, <laughs> I've been low key Googling all of these. And especially when you're saying we all know where that is. And I'm like, yep, we all know where that is. As I'm Googling, realizing I definitely don't know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> they are cool looking. Can confirm to our audience. You should check out. I second what the, the actual med student said. The image is very cool. Nice. Excellent. Unless Jones, Eli, you got a couple bones you want to throw out there. They've been that you really want to get over under on? Uh, he, he, we list all the good ones. I mean, I was going to ask, uh, what's his stance on just phalanges generally? Phalanges, <laughs> just generally on the phalanges. Uh, pretty yeah, important. Not even over pretty under. Important. Just what, what? Yeah, what's your take on phalanges, just generally? Yeah. I think everyone's got like something wrong with one of their phalanges at least. I know I do have like a weird finger, but uh, they're definitely important. You want to be able to have that dexterity and function. So they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. For this week's ranking, I am going to be ranking my top five sports movie characters. And this was a fun one for me because it's not about the actors themselves or actresses. It is about the character and what that character represents to the film or to me in my movie watching, sports loving journey in my life and not watching a ton of movies as a kid I also want to make sure that I say I might miss a bunch of the classics so take it take it easy on me both of you and our listeners but here are my top five sports movie characters number five from the movie goal a classic coming out in mid-2000s Santiago Munez the main character of goal Santiago Munez is a character grows up in a pretty poor family in LA, ends up trialing with Newcastle in England and really just forms a beautiful friendship with the team's new star. They get into a lot of shenanigans. A lot happens with his family. 
Also, spoiler warning, it's too late now, but you should you should have seen the movie by now. It came out 15 years ago. And eventually there's a very cool sequence in the end where they score a goal against Liverpool, and he also scores a really emotional free kick. So I guess I'm just going to be doing movie summaries too. We're in the business of spark notes now. I don't know. Have you, there, have you guys seen Goal, the movie? Yes. Yes. Yep. It's a good one. It's a good one. Number four. My number four rated sports movie character is Happy Gilmore from Happy Gilmore. Don't need to say much more. It's quite the quite the role. Iconic. It's, it's iconic. iconic. Iconic character. You just know the name Happy. If you're referencing a character named Happy, it's like, all right, cool. You know, you know who you're talking about. That's true. You got the batting cage scene. You got the mini golf scene. All the actual golf, just crushing the golf ball, which is also iconic in that everyone has been trying that since the movie came out. Pretty special. <laughs> Number three, Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights. A beaut. He's, he's, he's a character that you hate to love and some people just love to love, but he is obviously a very attractive guy, has the kind of grunge look to him, and represents in that movie something that everyone can kind of get behind obviously his situation his family situation you know he's kind of the heart and soul of the series friday night lights i guess i guess i snuck a series in here with with movie characters but that shows how much he meant to me it's also a show i'm re-watching currently so kind of top of mind are you actually yep oh dude good for you that's a great show quick side note tim riggins plays the main character in waco so i know that uh some people are kind of shook taken for a spin when they watch Waco. If you haven't seen it, definitely recommend. Number two, Jerry Maguire from the movie Jerry Maguire. Kind of similar to Happy. It's iconic, an iconic character, a lot of iconic quotes. It's a movie that me and Jones just watched recently, which is why it's top of mind. But Show Me the Money ranks up there probably with all-time used quotes, to be honest. It is. Uh... I think it's interesting you've you've chosen the character Jerry Maguire. I think you could say Rod Tidwell might be more of the iconic character from Jerry Maguire, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., who is issuing or, or proclaimed to show me the money. But I agree, the movie, the namesake of the movie, is probably more iconic than the name Rod Tidwell. So I, I, I have to agree with, with that as a number two. I'm eager to hear what number one is. Fair enough. Could have gone, gone either way there with that all-time movie. Number one is... Vince Papali from the movie Invincible. And this isn't, it's not as popular of a movie as some of those others, I think, to be honest. But Invincible is the story of a beautiful lad who struggles. He's a bartender. Things are looking tough in Philly. I'm a Giants fan. I still love the movie. And he works his way into the NFL on an open tryout and based on a true story. So pretty incredible. I would I think, like to I see... Yeah, go. No, I think that's a solid number one. It didn't make my initial just quick list that I have, but I love that pick. You can't go wrong with a pick like Vince Papali. It's it's a universal. That is universal. Everyone's heartwarming. Number one should be number one. Um, I'm curious to see uh, the number of people, like like where that movie uh, ha- has the most amount of heart for it. Is it a strictly East Coast thing? Does it bleed into the Midwest as well? Where is it? Where where are the pockets where it really stands out? Is it like a nice blue collar story? So it so it works across the Midwest and really has a good home there. 
Um, or is it just a, is it an Eagle story? Is it mm-hmm. just an East coast? Is it something that just lives there? Obviously you would, you would assume there it is big, but you know, what about Rocky? You know, Rocky's gotta be a big one on the East coast too. Um, so I'm interested in that. I also, end of the day though, you can't go wrong with Marky Mark. You really can't. He, he kind of crushes that role. He, he's great for it. I would love to see the, the geo breakdown in, in fan interest. I would love to hear one or two of your misses from that list. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple of mine. Um, so as I was looking through this just very quickly, I realized that one, I don't watch a lot of sports movies per se. And the ones I do are just comedy. Uh, so a lot of dodgeball, Happy Gilmore, Talladega Nights, <laughs> those type of those type of movies. Um, yeah. However, uh, first pick, Tanya, played by Margot Robbie in I, Tanya. Great character. Margot did a fantastic job. Such a unique uh, sports character. Uh, really terrible, interesting relationship between her and her mom. Uh, but I thought she was fantastic. Great character. Second, Herb Brooks from Miracle, Minnesota boy. Coached the Miracle winning, was that 1980 or 84? Oh God, I forget. Uh, gold medal winning U.S. hockey team against the Russian team. Can you give me a go, uh, one more Herb Brooks? Can you give me a, uh, an, an again and then blow your whistle? <laughs> again. <laughs> Frankie. Oh my God. Whoa. Who whoa, is that? I thought that was Herb. Oh, Herb? Herb? <laughs> Do we have you? Herb, you're going to kill the players. You got to shut off the lights. Legs feed the beast. <laughs> Jones? Uh, I think a really quick list. Uh, you, you named the movies Happy Gilmore and Jerry Maguire. I would go for Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore and Rod Tildwell from uh, from Jerry Maguire. Both just like iconic like names that you kind of pull out of there. Interesting. Um, I like that. But, but the other ones that were personal to me, one would be just the name Sunshine from Remember the Titans. You got to love Ryan Gosling's character. I don't think he's the biggest character, but just the name Sunshine is one that comes to mind. And then I think a subtle one, he's not the biggest character, obviously, in the movie, but um, from The Sandlot, Scotty Smalls is the genesis of the name, uh, of, the, of the comment, you're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. I, I feel like he is not the biggest character, most significant, but that might be one of the most significant disses, things that you throw back at a person who's just killing you, man. They're killing you, Smalls. You're killing me. You're killing me. Totally. You're killing me. Sounds like you're dead. You're about to die. I died twice. Love those additions. If you have other additions, you being the listeners, things we missed, let us know on Instagram when we put some of this footage up there as we want to make sure we're getting all our great content out there, but appreciate you listening, making it this far in the pod. As always, we'll be back next week with more great content, top news, good interviews, and a couple of laughs with a couple of buddy fellas. Good guys. Adios. sprinting in from across the field and this is I swear the only time this has ever happened but just double calf cramp and I just go down and then there's like a pile everyone gets up and I couldn't get up and the trainer had to like come around and like walk me off the field